This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Kajina is the technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer, and we're live streaming this radio program in two places, actually. My YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and my Rumble channel, Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Just a programming note, next week's show, which will take place on Boxing Day, will be a repeat program from December 26, 2012. Going to dial back nine years with guest host Victor Vigiani, And in the first hour, the star of Bethlehem, as Christian lore has it, guided three wise men to a site in a Judean town where a newborn child of significant eminence lay in a construct that sheltered animals. Tradition says they came to hail the birth of a new king, an exceptional child conceived in unique circumstances, born under exceptional circumstances with a star, no less, for a designated guiding light that brings special visitors with special behests to see him all this accompanied by apparitions and space-wide manifestations a real magic show for all to see and hear in a little significant town 2000 years ago what other so-called inexplicable magic show that goes on today bears a natural reference to all this in terms of its spectacle and wonder uh yes you've guessed it the ufo phenomenon victor and UFO expert Nigel Kerner will discuss in the second hour who actually were the Magi, kings or scientists, and what was the celestial phenomenon we're told the Magi followed in the sky? Why was Mary chosen to be the mother of Jesus? Father Richard Gaius will examine the role played by King Herod in the highly politicized world in Judeo before the before and after Christ's birth. So uh, that's next week with special guest host Victor Vigiani as we uh, dial back to December 26, 2012 for that one. All right, settle in, friends. We are going to talk giants for the next two hours. There are giants among us passing largely unnoticed intent 
on carrying out a secret plan to enslave all humanity. They may not look like giants today, but their bloodlines extend all the way back to the Nephilim, the offspring of angels who mated with human women. Described in Genesis 6 when giants roamed the land. Gary Wayne details the role of modern-day Nephilim in Satan's plan to install the Antichrist at the end of days, when God cast the angel Lucifer and his followers out of heaven. Lucifer set into motion a scheme to ensure the Nephilim survived. Why? Because from the bloodlines of these Nephilim and the, uh, the Antichrist will come. To keep his plan alive, Satan has enlisted the loyalty of secret societies such as the Freemasons, the Templars, and the Rosicrucians to conspire in teaching a theology and a history of the world that is contrary to the biblical one. This Genesis 6 conspiracy marches toward the Great Tribulation when the loyalty of the terminal generation, this generation, will be tested. The Bible, along with many other ancient sources, clearly records the existence of giants. Gary Wayne is here to provide copious citations from many society insiders, along with extensive Bible references, other religious references, and historical material to bolster his connection. Gary is a Christian contrarian who's maintained a lifelong love affair with biblical prophecy, history, and mythology. His extensive study has encompassed the Bible and Gnostic scriptures, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, Gilgamesh, and other ancient epics, language, etymology, and secret society publications. The Genesis 6 conspiracy, how secret societies and the descendants of giants plan to enslave humankind is his seminal work. Gary Wayne, welcome. How are you? Well, I think we're on mute there, Gary. I think you're muted. Just hit that uh, microphone. No, you're still muted. Uh, Maybe Ryan can, it's on your computer computer screen there. Uh, You just have to unmute in Skype on your computer screen. Can you hear me? Should be uh, on your on your computer screen. You should see a microphone button, and you just have to click on that. It's got a red line through it. That means it's muted. All right. Well, we'll. Jeez. Oh, there we are. Here we are. Oh, I've got me, you, Gary. Uh, I'm gonna have some feedback going here. That's all right. That. Technology, folks. We're grappling with technology here on live radio, not a problem. So the uh, the Genesis 6 conspiracy, how secret societies and the descendants of giants plan to enslave humankind. All right. Are you there, Gary? All right. He's just plugging in his headset. All right. We're almost there, folks. Thanks for your patience. Okay, I see people are gathering in the YouTube live chat. Let me just say hello to them while we're waiting. You betcha is here. So how's that? Rip, uh, who else do we have? Bella. Bella is here. We've got Mike checking in from Kentucky. 
reptilian cyst. My word, what a handle. Thinker, of course, toxic Canadian, not Gordian is here. Show me the truth. 74 is here. How's that? There, I can hear you. Can you hear me, Gary? I can hear you perfectly. All right. Welcome. Terrific. So let's dive in. Uh, First of all, when the uh, these rebellious angels landed at Mount Hermon, I think there were about 200 of them, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Uh, are you able to tell us, uh, do, you, do we know who their leader was? Biblically, we don't. Biblically, we don't get the uh, name of the uh, leader. I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting a lot of. Yeah, we're getting some here. feedback here. Okay. So I think what I mean, we need to do is just do it right through the phone and I'll take the video off. Okay, let's do that. Is that acceptable? Yeah. Yes, it is. Although it sounded better there now. I'm not hearing the feedback. I'm not getting feedback right now either. So maybe no, we're good. I think we're good to go. <laughs> All right. So who was the leader of this band of 200 rebellious angels that landed at Mount Hermon? Yeah, biblically, we don't get the name in the Bible, but the book of Enoch talks about uh, an angel named Azazel or Shemiaza as the leader of these 200 who swore the oath on Mount Hermon uh, to carry out the deeds that they had planned together to do. And typically people think that maybe Shemiaza is the leader and typically some people think Azazel is the leader. What generally seems to be the case is that Somewhere before the time of uh, the book of Enoch was was written down and you know and and translated down through other languages so that we don't have a original copy of the Hebrew scripture, you have a splitting of the name of Shemiaza and Azazel. They tend to be, from what most researchers uh, look at, as being the same angel that uh, has been named twice and seemingly having the same sort of responsibilities and things in, in the book of Enoch. And typically an angel's name ends in E-L as in Azazel. And Shemiaza is kind of a combination of a few words that comes out of a few other religions. So you it's kind of like a Z word, the, the Yaza part, and Shem goes back to the Shemayim in Hebrew. And renowned and so it's almost like a title that's been added in there so make the make the story short on that aspect i would say azazel is the name and shimyaza might be a title as he's known in other cultures uh and so is shimyaza is is he satan or or lucifer uh, not again in the book of Enoch we get Satan as a, a separate individual and we also get Satans that are plural and these Satans they answer to Satan in in the uh, book of Enoch so they would be lower down on the rank so if you can imagine the pantheon of gods around the world and they generally have seven in that pantheon who are represented by you know, sort of the local planets that we have, and also uh, the sun, uh, not the sun, um, and the moon as well. And Satan would be the eighth, and so he's above that pantheon. So the the Satans, and that would include Azazel, would be 
people would be like his lieutenants, like his generals, his leaders of all of the other rebellious angels. So if you can imagine the host of heaven is an army of angels, and the host, as that goes back to Hebrew, is the Hebrew word Saba. And Saba means an army. So there's an army with rank and hierarchy and different orders. And one needs to imagine whether or not it's the loyal angels and the, or the rebellious angels and the gods having that same kind of hierarchy that they would have within their specific armies. Uh, and so, again, the, the angels that landed at Mount Hermon. Uh, what order of angels were they before they were cast out for rebelling? What, what was their function? What was their job? Well, you have many, many angels, so there's more than just the 200. And Revelation 12 actually talks about um, this war of angels. And early on in Revelation and also in the book of Daniel, we're told the number of angels around the throne is 10,000 times 10,000, which is basically 100 million. So even if that is an allegorical number, it is a significant number. But taking it literally, if a third of them is Revelation 12, discusses, they would have been at least 33 million. So you've got a lot of angels, and you've got different sort of ranks and orders. So the ones that most people reference when it comes to the creation of the giants are the Watchers. And the Watchers show up in Daniel 4, four times biblically, and it's a Hebrew word, ir, for meaning Watcher. And those are thought to be the seraphim watchers that are around the throne, both in the Bible and the book of Enoch. So the watchers are the ones who are always awake and always watching, and that includes four groups. One is the archangels, one is the Ophanim, one is the Trubim, and the other one is the seraphim. It's the seraphim that tend to be the ones that are thought to be the watchers who provide governance over the earth and the religious aspect of the civilizations that seem to be the ones that initially decided that they were going to create the giants and swore the oath on uh, Mount Hermon. So typically we we understand this as being the seraphim angels. And there were the fiery serpent-based angels with six wings. So they decided, they swore an oath that they were going to take the daughters of men and and create these these hybrid creatures, the Nephilim, who were the giants. How were they? How did they um, take the women? Was it by force? Was it through trickery? Were 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 uh, deals struck? In other words, in exchange for technology? How was this achieved? How, how was? How, how, how was it achieved? How? I didn't quite understand the question. Well, the, the, uh, the angels, did they take the, the, the women by force? Okay, uh, yes, gotcha. Were their marriages arranged? Were, was there an exchange of technology? You, you get a couple of different versions. One is, is that the women were attracted to, to the fallen angels, but typically how the wording is placed, whether it's in the book of Enoch or uh, in the Bible, is they took any that they chose. So that meant they were the ones that were in charge, the angels, and they just they took as many women as they chose to um, to bed and to create these 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 uh, giants, which biblically would be known before the flood as the Nephilim. So 
one would not expect that it was a symbiotic relationship. Maybe the women didn't mind. Maybe they objected, were not told, but the language suggests that they didn't have a choice. Um, so the, giving birth to a, uh, a, a giant, I'm, I'm guessing, led to, to death in, in, in each and every occasion, would it? I mean, I would imagine if you're going to give birth to a, a creature of that size, I mean, they're not full size, of course, when they come out, but did it always end in death for the women? Yeah, well, I mean, one would expect the babies would be a, of extraordinary size as well. And so biblically, we're not told in the book of Enoch, we're not told. But what is interesting in a book that is based on the Old Testament that was written down by the Ethiopians in terms of a Judaic sect in the Kebra Nagast, it said that all of the babies were born because of their size through a cesarean um, operation that uh, caused all of the mothers to die. Uh, but biblically or from other sources that talk a lot about the giants, we really don't find that out. And in the book of Enoch, though, what's interesting, it's, it says about the uh, the mothers who produced the giants. They turned into a kind of a demon, and they are the sirens, um, which is sort of the root to the mermaid mythology. So when you talk about sort of a demon being you're talking about a spiritual being that would be the spirits of the of the human females that would have been cursed for um, creating these what the book of Enoch talks about the violations against the laws of creation uh, and are uh, sentenced to sort of roam the earth as these demon kind of spirits called sirens uh, and with these with these um, Nephilim were they equal? Well, they were they were part human. They were part angel. Uh, but were they did they have a conscience or I mean, were, or were they pure evil? Were they conflicted? Well, I, I, I think they all had a choice. Right. Everybody that's on this earth today or in history or in prehistory, they're born with free choice, just as the angels had free choice to be loyal or not, just as we have a choice to believe what we want to do and follow who we want to follow. So they would have had that choice as well. They would have had the immortal spirit of the fallen angels, and they would have had these extraordinary sized bodies and probably some extraordinary gifts that went along with that. But they would have had a choice to be good or evil. And in a lot of polytheist cultures, you actually get the sort of dualism in terms of whether or not they were good or evil. So if you go into, let's say, the Greek mythology, for instance, you have Hercules or Theseus or Perseus, who are offsprings of the gods and a human female and were understood in ancientology as demigods as that definition the offspring of a god and a human female these were heroes and earthly titans and just as poseidon would created 12 nephilim kings or titan or hero kings from his cohabitation with clido to create the 10 kings for the atlantean empire you have Ones that are good and ones that are evil. And one presumes that they chose to either be beneficial to humankind or not, but they ruled. And they were all sort of leaders of humans, whether it was good or it was evil. 
Typically, most of them tended to be evil or became evil because of their hubris, because of their great strength, because of their great size and their ability just to dominate humans. These weren't just tall. I mean, they were called giants for a reason, and the size was absolutely, you know, incredible when we look at, you know, the comparatives between what a human would be or what a giant would be. And before the flood, the giants were thought to be, you know, 20 to 40 feet tall. And some accounts might suggest that they were even larger than that. They're a little bit smaller than that after the flood. But these were incredibly huge beings. And so you, one can imagine that not only were they big, but they were um, aggressive and they were fleet of foot and they were sort of the ultimate warrior. So it kind of follows that a lot of them would develop some arrogance and some hubris. And once they cross that threshold, then they turn into oppressors of humankind, even though there might have been a few giants that were trying to protect humans. By the time the flood comes, they are destroying humankind en masse, and they are controlling all of the governments. So um, by virtue of having Nephilim blood, that wouldn't exclude you from salvation though technically i guess is what i'm saying some people uh say that I, I i don't think so i think we're all here with free choice and that if you receive uh whether or not it would be a bloodline or genes or if if you're the offspring you still have free choice and in the christian belief which i'm a christian all, all the sins of the world are forgiven except for violations against the laws of creation. But still, these beings would have had a choice, whether or not they wanted to make that choice, whether or not they had hearts that were hardened. They still had a choice, and depending on what they did and, and who they followed, then they, in turn, would be saved for, through the sacrifice of Christ. Now, I know a lot of people may tend to, tend to disagree with me on that, but I do believe in that sort of principle of, of, of free choice. The thing that you have to remember, though, about these Nephilim, though, is it's not likely they were followers of God. They may have done some good things, but they would have been followers of the pantheon. And as a polytheist, then even if they do good things, you're typically not going to be saved through the sacrifice of Christ, except as the Book of Romans talks about, there will be those who weren't able to become in contact with Jesus' teachings and aware of who he was and what a sacrifice, then they'll be judged as to what they did based on what was in their hearts. So if they were, if they were doing things in their hearts and for good all of the time, then that's the standard they would be judged against. So, All right, uh, Gary, we'll, we'll take a quick time out and uh, come back and continue to discuss giants. Gary Wayne, the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, How Secret Societies and the Descendants of Giants Plan to Enslave Humankind. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Hey, welcome back. Gary Wayne is here author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, How Secret Societies and the Descendants of Giants Plan to Enslave Humankind. So we had uh, gi giants in Canaan. Um, 
But how do we explain the the legends of giants uh, in the New World uh, and elsewhere around the world? Are they connected? Well, and, and even more is, is how do giants show up after the flood? So that you have this flood that's designed to wipe them out, but yet biblically we get giants in Canaan, as you talked about, and also we have giants that show up all around the world, not just in North America, but all around the world, both before and after the flood. So when we look at the giants in North America, uh, they tend to be connected back to the ones in Canaan. So if we sort of start there and come forward, I'll make those connections. And the giants can only really sort of show up after the flood in a couple of ways. That somehow they survive, whether or not it's through the gods and the fallen angels, in the earth, off the earth, on an ark somehow, or there's a second creation after the flood. And it uh, doesn't really, really matter. I tend to fall, though, into a second incursion. And these are giants that are called the Raphaim after the flood, as opposed to the Nephilim before the flood. And they're giants as well. Uh, they're thought not to be quite as large, but these are the post-Diluvian giants. They tended to be both before and after the flood, which means there's a connection, whether, you know, so again, they could survive or be recreated. They tended to have red hair, pale skin, white, uh, pale white skin, and either hazel eyes or blue eyes. And the North American giants tend to be red-haired. And, of course, with the elongated skulls that the giants also had. Same with the Peruvian skulls up there that they find with the elongated skulls. They're associated with the red hair. So it seems likely that um, there's, a, there's a source that would come uh, that would predate the North American and the South American giants and seemingly would connect back to uh, Canaan and, and the Middle, Middle East. There was some research that was done in the last few years where they've taken some of the sampling of the Peruvian skulls and they kind of linked them back into Scotland and the Tuatha de Danan and back into uh, the Scythians, which are connected people, because that's where the Tuatha de Danan come from after the flood. And those seem to be the same beings that were um, also migrated into the Canaanite land as aboriginals very shortly after the flood. So I think they're kind of connected on that. Uh, so you mentioned that the Rephaim were uh, smaller in stature than you know, the, the first several generations uh, or pre-flood giants. Is that because they uh, intermingled with humans and so gradually, you know, through intermarrying and so forth or crossbreeding, if I can use that, that's a rather crass term. Uh, is that what ultimately led to the giants becoming smaller and smaller? Uh, ultimately, that had uh, the biggest thing to their why there's such a reduction in size over time. And for some reason, and particularly in accounts like the Ugaritic text where it talks about the Rapiu, which are the Raphaim, is they were having a fertility problem. So you combine a fertility problem and an issue of intermarriage and too small of a circle of bloodlines, and you also will get blood disease. So they were kind of forced to bring in human populations, generally females, but in some cases males, to produce um, hybrid humans 
uh, as offspring. And as that sort of continued down through the generations, you would get that dilution in terms of size and in the features as to what they would have looked like. And we get sort of an indication of this in a couple passages in the Bible that they were indeed intermarrying. Uh, in the Genesis 36, you have Eliphaz, who is the son of Esau, and the brother of Jacob, who is the, uh, the patriarch for the Israelites. His son Eliphaz um, marries, or his son uh, Eliphaz is the son of Esau. Eliphaz marries a, a, a Horim. Uh, who is a Raphaim as well. It's a different tribe of the Raphaim and also with pale skin and red hair. And his allies is typically how, how they're described. She marries Amalek, or marries Eliphaz and produces Amalek and produces the Amalekites um, that people are probably familiar with from the Bible. And they were hybrid humans from a female source. In the book of Genesis, also in Genesis 10 with the Canaanites, you have three patriarchs that are listed. You have Canaan, who has two sons, Sidon and Heth. And then you have nine pa uh, patriarchless families of Canaanites. And families can go back to, as it goes back to Hebrew, can mean either family, so it also means species, a different kind, a different race. And depending on the narrative that it's in is how you're going to define that. But they don't have a specific patriarch as all the other nations uh, that are counted at 70 in the table of nations in Genesis 10 and 1 Chronicles. They all have a patriarch except for this nine. Giants don't tend to have a patriarch in the table of nations. So the Anakim, which are also uh, biblically documented as giants, and that word giant goes back to Rapha, and the male plural is I am for the Raphaim, is a, an, another tribe of the Raphaim. And the patriarch for the Anakim, his name is Arba, as we're told in the book of Joshua, and Arba is not listed in the table of nations. So we get this sort of anecdotal uh, information that there was this intermarriage to create these hybrid humans that weren't as large as the Raphaim, but still taller than the average, let's say, Israelite at that time, that would have been somewhere between five to five and a half feet or so. Um, the Egyptians called these hybrids the Shazu, and they were typically seven to nine feet tall. And when Moses sent spies and scouts into the land of Canaan to uh, bring back a report of the land. They brought back a report of two different kinds of people. One were uh, the Anakim kings, and the three kings that were mentioned were Talmai, Ahiman, and, and Sheshai. And they also mentioned people that are stronger and taller, which included people like the Amalekites and like the Canaanites and like the Amorites. And these are nations that were hybrid nations. And in Deuteronomy 1, which does a, sort of a recap on this 40 years later, as Israel is about to march on Canaan and, and into the land of the Raphaim and the hybrids, Moses recaps the story and actually says that uh, there were the, Anak the Anakim there and the other people were taller than the Israelites. So I think we get those kinds of peoples that are intermixing and producing that hybrid human race that are si still significantly taller than um, the humans. 
We don't get a lot of dimensions in the Bible in terms of the size of the Raphaim after the flood. The only two references that we would have would be, uh, 400 years later would be the best example would be with Goliath, who was also uh, a son of a giant, as with four other brothers, as the son of the same giant from, um, from Gath, the city of Gath, the Philistine city. And that's the word giant again, which is Rapha and Raphaim. So it could be that that father's name was Rapha as a patronymic name, or it's just going back generically as the Raphaim and, and, and the plural thereof. He is six cubits and a span. And typically the giants are kings. So a cubit is generally 18 inches as a common, but a royal cubit would be 21 inches. So Goliath would have been nine feet, nine inches tall, to about 11, three, 11 feet, 3 inches tall, depending on how you want to measure that cubit. So no matter what, he's at least twice the size. And they also were thought to have a height-to-width ratio that was 50% larger, uh, as in stockier, as what the humans were. So they were built like wrestlers, like uh, WWF wrestlers or linemen. They just weren't these tall, skinny giants. These were, these were uh, strong, fleet-of-foot Warriors. And the other reference would be Og's bed. And he's a king and he's a Raphaim. He's the last of the original Raphaim, as he's depicted three times biblically. And his um, <clears throat> bed was basically nine cubits long and four cubits wide. So he's going to be somewhere between 12 and 15 feet tall. And he's going to be somewhere between four to five, maybe even six feet wide. And so that bed was made of iron, not wood, because it wouldn't have held his weight. And they kept that bed as a representation of the size of Aga in a city called Rabba for a very long period of time. And Josephus makes reference to these, uh, to the bones of the giants that the Israelites killed, that they were of a completely different bioengineering uh, and uh, different sort of framework to hold that kind of size and weight. So when we talk about the different kinds of beings that come from the intermarriage, all of this is taking place in the early post-Diluvian world. All right, Gary, another time out. Back with more of our conversation, the Genesis 6 conspiracy. We're talking giants for the full two hours. Don't go away. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Gary Wayne stays with us. The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. We're talking giants for the full two hours. Uh, did the Nephilim have, uh, and their descendants, um, did they have any any supernatural abilities? Yeah, it's a good question, and a lot of people think that they did, and particularly perhaps a changeling quality. We don't really get any evidence of that, but obviously the angels, to take a physical body in the physical uh, universe, uh, they would have had to change from a spirit being into a physical being and to be able to produce DNA to produce offspring. So there's that possibility, but we don't get that as a superpower. But what we do get is that these giants 
uh, had super strength and super speed, and uh, some were thought to be, you know, highly highly intelligent as well. Uh, although, again, there's debate as to whether or not that's um, accurate or not. But we're not given sort of that hard, tangible evidence there. I think one has to be open-minded that that might be the case. But again, we really don't have that. They tended to have a bank of knowledge that assisted them. And that's where some of the powers sort of, uh, I think, come into play. And so in the organizational structure of their dynasties and the kingdoms and the noble elite, which would have been the Nephilim and the Rephaim after the flood, they would have also had those same bloodlines and sort of larger family that controlled the priesthood. And in the priesthood, they developed the knowledge that was given from the gods and was developed in the seven sacred sciences before the flood that merged to really develop technology that uh, starts to explain some of the things that you might see coming out of the antediluvian world, whether or not, and the most obvious would be the megalithic structures, whether it's a city like Machu Picchu or the pyramids or all of these underground cities and things that you see around the world that they had the technology that we don't have today. And within that knowledge is the magical arts. And, of course, art is just another word for science in, in, the, in, in the ancient world. And so they were developing all of these different sciences to do things that we're just starting to tap into today. And I think that would have been the source of that sort of additional power that they had uh, because they developed extraordinary weapons and, and, and things like that. So, um, But physical attributes in terms of that type of uh, superpower, we don't really get that in terms of even in the polytheist mythologies, it's typically their weapons that are sort of unique, and that comes out of that bank of knowledge. Uh, getting back to the physical characteristics, where we often think of giants having an extra digit on each hand, each toe, a second row of teeth. Is that true? It is in some, not all, um, but it is, it is something that does show up. And we actually get biblically an account of six digits on each hand of one specific giant in the time of, of Goliath. And uh, so, but from physical other attributes, they would have taken on the look of their, procreators of the fallen angels. So when we look at depictions that are in the antediluvian civilizations and the early post-diluvian civilizations, most of the gods are serpentine, which are like seraphim angels. It would be akin to the Nagas in India, the dragon creator gods in China. You would have the feathered serpents and the plume serpents like uh, Quetzalcoatl in the uh, Aztec um, religion and similar types of gods throughout the Incas and all through Central and South America and North America. You have the same type of, of gods and they're all serpentine with these six wings, which are the serpent gods and or dragons. And so the kings and the queens and particularly in places like Sumeria, are depicted and actually called serpents because they look just like their procreators. And so they had this serpentine face. So if you can imagine again that long elongated skull that has on the face a protruding chin, very, very high, narrow 
cheekbones, very, very large wraparound eyes that glowed and would light up um, a room. If, if people have seen the Stargate uh, series with the Gauld and when they speak, their voices bellow and their eyes glow, that's sort of like a, a building on that mythos as to uh, what the serpentine giants looked like. But there were other gods and other angels that had a different look. So you can imagine uh, a god like Nergal, who was a lion god, and or Mahis or Sekhmet or Bast in the Egyptian pantheon and Narashima in the Indian pantheon, producing offspring that looked like them as well. So you get these beings that show up in the Bible called the lion men of Moab or the lion-like men of Gad or Arioch, the king of uh, the kings of the east and the war of giants in Genesis 14. That also means lion-like by his name. And then you get these lion-like warriors that are depicted in Sumerian mythology, Egyptian mythology, and all around the world. Then they were not typically the kings, but they were a warrior class. So um, they were mostly amongst the, you know, the armies and used as, as mercenary warriors. You also get um, these Tengu gods that show up in um, India and China and Southeast Asia that had these bird faces. And they produced offspring that were called the Tengu. And in the Kishamaya, they would have, they produced the Zilbalba and the House of Kamazots. And if somebody Googles Kamazots, you're going to see a picture that shows up that looks like a Batman uh, uh, outfit because and mask because the Kamazot was the house of the Bat people in terms of those demigods. And so they would have come from these these bird-like gods, whether or not it is like Horus, who is a falcon god, um, and typically. These bird gods were understood uh, as having one of four faces when they took a physical form. And it was typically that eagle head. And that was the cherubim uh, and that were in, in the Bible. And one of those faces, you know, is, is, is an eagle. And the uh, Gary, pardon the interruption. Uh, we've got to take another time out. We'll, uh, we'll come, up, come back and pick up on that point. Uh, Gary Wayne, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, Gary, you were just dis uh, describing some of these, uh, these strange uh, iterations, I guess, of uh, the Nephilim. Um, and, they, and some of these uh, correspond with images from ancient Egypt. Uh, what about jackals? Yes. What about, um, you know, we often see uh, these depictions uh, in the Egyptian hieroglyphics of, you know, half human, half jackal or. Yeah. Uh, 
So the uh, parent god Anubis uh, was the jackal god and a marker of a dog, so to speak, in that classification. And he produced offspring as well. And they lived in a massive city called Sinopolis, Dog City, uh, is how we would sort of translate that. And this is the root for the dog men, but really dog Nephilim. And again, uh, Mythos, and they were all warriors. And again, you get these dog Nephilim whether all around the world, whether or not it's in Greek mythology or in the subcontinent of India or over into China. This is a common sort of understanding. And biblically, you have one of the Raphaim tribes, the Avim, that are worshipping a god named Nebaz, who is the barking god. And he's a god that would be akin to um, Anubis. So I think those gods would be the root for the for the dog people or the dog men or the dog Nephilim, as, as I, I would like to, to call them. And just as you have the Anunnaki that are represented with wings as being those eagle gods that would have produced those bird Nephilim that, uh, and if somebody wants to king, you know, Google Tengu, you'll get some images on these uh, creatures that um, are absolutely astounding because they were, again, warriors and priests of the Tengu. The, the dog Nephilim were warriors. I have uh, documents that I make available to people if they get a hold of me at my website at the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. I have a three-part series of, on the dog men. I have one on the lion men. I have one on the serpent um, Nephilim. And I also have one on um, the lion men. So on each of those, I have a link to a Facebook uh, publication where I have pictures of engravings of these uh, and reliefs of these types of Nephilim, and they are absolutely astounding to, to look at. So if people are interested in that, just get a hold of me and I'll send you the document with, with the link with those pictures. And getting back to the uh, serpentine ones, is who are the offspring of the seraphim angels, they were the ruling class in terms of the kings for the most part. And... You know, over a thousand years after the flood, you have a king of the Armana dynasty named Akhenaten, and uh, he's the father of King Tut. And if anybody has ever been to one of those traveling museums, or if you want to Google Akhenaten, you'll bring up that picture. And when I was describing that uh, protruded chin and that high cheekbone and those large wraparound eyes and that elongated skull... That's Akhenaten's head. That's a serpentine look diluted over a thousand years after the flood. And so going back to the comment that you had made earlier and what we had talked about is that these bloodlines were being diluted. So they were losing those features over time and they were losing their size over time. But there were many different kinds of Nephilim and Raphaim. And I think they were recreated again after the flood in all of those different varieties as, as well, because we get so many post-Diluvian accounts of them as well. So you have ones before and ones after. And it's absolutely frightening to think that this was commonplace. And the dog Nephilim, they are being depicted and described by hyster uh, historians and in um, Eastern Orthodox religion accounts all the way, and part of, and some into the Roman accounts as well, uh, up to 1000 AD and maybe even a little bit beyond. So 
there is an incredible amount of source that's in secular history actually accounting for these these beings. It's crazy. What about Bigfoot in North America, Sasquatch, or Yeti in in, uh, in the Asian continent? Uh, is there a connection, do you suppose, between these creatures and the Nephilim? I think there is. I, I don't think they're Nephilim um, or Raphaim, but they are sort of under that umbrella, as I would call it, uh, Nephilim type of creations. So typically you have the Bigfoot, they're, they're, they're larger, a little larger than humans, but not as big as the Nephilim, but they're hairy, just as the Nephilim were, were hairy. Their eyes kind of glow, they, they communicate, they're associated with um, caves, they're associated with the little people, which is again another uh, type of creation that seemed to happen both before and again after the flood. And associated with portals as well. And there are gods in the Indian pantheons that sort of are like ape-like. And so one presumes that, um, at least coming out of the polytheist accounts, is that the gods would typically copulate to create these types of beings. So one would presume that they were either after taking the characteristics of an animal or of the god, and I would lean towards the god than copulation with an animal to create the, these types of beings, and again to 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 sort of take after the looks of of, of their procreator. So there's a definite connection there between the Bigfoot and the Yeti and the Sasquatch and all the different names, and like the Nephilim, and like the Little People, and like the pyramids, and like the flood. These accounts are part of a common history that is recorded in all cultures on all continents around the world. And they have the same similar descriptions and accounts of these beings all around the world. So there's a relationship there that just we just haven't quite fully put together. But in the early post-Diluvian world, and very much so in the antediluvian world, that was all, all of these different Creations were part of the ruling organizational structure that reported to the demigod Nephilim and to the gods that were governing the earth, the Watchers, also known as the Anunnaki. Is there a, a, a marker, a gene, uh, I don't know, a protein that can be linked back to the Nephilim? And, and at this point in, uh, in human history, do we all carry that gene or that marker? Well, certainly would be dispensed throughout a significant part of the world. What they call this gene in the mythos and in the occult polytheist religions is the gene of Isis and the same sort of root that Genesis comes from. And of course, Isis is the offspring, mother goddess, wife of Osiris. Uh, and the idea here is, is that there's a gene that is common to the mother goddess uh, that is sort of the allegory for the root of all things being created, and that there is a gene that is out there that identifies the people of those genealogies where, again, gene comes from, right, in terms of the genealogy uh, being a derivative of gene, and that this is the gene that they're looking for. And the gene would produce the blood of the Nephilim. And when you get into the bloodline of Rh negative with the four types, 
we find that there's about 15% of the population that has RH negative blood. And people sort of get sort of confused as to, well, it can't be bloodlines of the Nephilim because it's RH negative, it's missing the antigen, uh, and that's why it's negative. And then you, so you can't add something if something's missing, but it's the gene that produces the blood and starts to answer the questions as to why RH doesn't always continue to show up in, in, in each generation. But the point of the matter here is, is that it's a manifestation of that gene. And it's also called in um, polytheism and the secret societies, the spark of the divine. And so when you hear people talking about a thousand points of light, that's the spark of the divine, that's the gene, and that's the bloodline that they're trying to fully unite for um, bringing about the new age and the new world that they want to bring about. All right, we're uh, heading into the top of the hour. When we come back, we'll get into the uh, connection between giants and secret societies, and we'll also take your questions we can do it over the phone at 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740 in the greater Toronto area, toll-free from just about anywhere, 866-740-4740, 866-740-4740. And uh, we'll also take questions from the live chat. Back with more with um, Gary Wayne, the author of Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Sit tight. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Gary Wayne stays with us as we continue to discuss giants, and the book is The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, genesis6conspiracy.com. <clears throat> Excuse me, the website. Use the numeral 6, genesis6conspiracy.com. Uh, so what, what, is the, what was the end game, or what is the end game with the creation 
of uh, Nephilim and their descendants and the giants and so forth. Is it to is it to corrupt the was it to corrupt the bloodline, forestall um, the birth of of Christ by corrupting the the line of Judah? Yeah, I th- certainly think that was a uh, later tactic that was employed after after the flood uh, as to how do you prevent uh, the pure bloodline of the Messiah coming forward. But it starts before that, that they're, re- they're really trying to do, and why they're created by the gods and the fallen angels, is that they want to have them usurp control over the kingships and over the religions and to lead people away from the God of the Bible, the the omnipotent God, and to worship them and have them, by doing so, uh, not reach their destiny to be raised up like angels, to actually uh, judge angels for the crimes against humanity and for... um, all the the crimes against creation that they did in the physical world. So the plan of the demigods was to take over the leadership and parade them into destruction. And of course, the flood comes along, and uh, the world starts anew. But the giants are, are are there as well. So that's when you start to look at how how are they going to corrupt that Magianic line? In before the flood, it says that. Uh, just before the flood, the whole earth was corrupted. And that's more than just the violence and the godlessness that is being talked about in those verses. It is the the utter sort of destruction of the uh, and counterfeiting and manipulating of the DNA and the plant genome. So the word corrupt is the Hebrew word chakath. And that means to decay, to degrade, to ruin to destroy so that the whole world was corrupt. The whole genomes of the plants and the animals and the humans were corrupt. And that's why you have a start anew uh, with Noah and uh, his three sons and their wives. And that is also why God calls the angels, or not the angels, but the animals to the ark, because he knows which ones haven't been corrupted, and he calls ones that represent each kind or each species. It wasn't of every type of every species. It was the ideal one that was able to repopulate the the earth after the flood. And so after the flood, you get Israel being born as part of the resolution plan to the angelic rebellion. And so the fallen angels and their demigod rulers, the Raphaim after the flood, are going to try to ensure that that never happens. And so they squat into and settle into the covenant land, the land of Canaan, and wait for this birthing nation of Israel that descends down through Abraham, is is brought to a nation in Egypt, and then Exodus is back to the covenant land, is now going to enter into this land to take that land back, to have that as a place for Uh, the Israelite people and the temple and to bring on the Messiah down the road. Now, the angels obviously knew about 
the Messiah as being part of the resolution, and they're going to try and usurp that. They're either going to try and wipe Israel from the face of the earth, and so the Amalekites that we talked about earlier from Timnah and Amalek, uh, from Eliphaz and Esau's would inherit the birthright of Jacob, or they would just usurp it with their own dragon messiah. But typically, they wanted to use Esau's bloodline to usurp it. And that's why you have the Battle of Rephidim uh, right at the time of Israel leaving the Exodus to try and make that happen, to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. After that, all of the giant nations are trying to do that to prevent Israel even having a chance to produce uh, the bloodline. But after that, then they want to intermarry to try and corrupt that bloodline. And so sort of taint the bloodline or usurp it through their own sort of genealogy. And so they're competing to present their dragon messiah versus the messiah of, of Israel as to which one's going to come along and sort of a, uh, accept and, and, and resolve this whole conflict that's been, been going on uh, throughout the generations. What happens, though, is that the angels don't, understand what Jesus is coming to do. And he's there to atone for the world's sins and is going to resurrect. They didn't anticipate the resurrection. And the book of Corinthians actually says, had they understood the resurrection would follow, they would never have had Jesus crucified. So it was something that they had no idea that was the true resolution to how they're going to end the angelic uh, rebellion through the resolution at the end time and the resurrection of humankind to be like angels. So, yes, they have been trying all along to do that, and then they're going to try and counterfeit that in the end time. Um, going back to uh, David, because Jesus comes from the line of David, when Goliath is squaring off against this young shepherd boy, does is Goliath cognizant of the fact that if he is successful and kills this shepherd boy, it's all over? I mean, they win, right? Because he, Dave, Jesus comes from the line of David. He does. And David has already been selected to replace Saul. And so, yes, uh, I think Goliath was quite happy that it was David who showed up. Now, whether or not they knew that, I'm sure they did, but we're not told that scripturally. But they would have been well versed in the politics of what was going on in Israel with the spies that they would have had in the, in the land. So one presumes that they had some sort of idea. And what's also interesting about the the Goliath account is he's laughing at David as he's approaching. And David has picked up uh, five stones, five smooth, five smooth stones to try and take down Goliath. But he didn't think he was going to miss. As, and as to why he took five stones, he knew that Goliath was either the head warrior, but likely the king of Gath, uh, and the other four cities of the Pentapolis of the Philistines were there as well, and they would have been giants as well. So David was prepared to kill all five giants, the kings of the five-city Pentapolis that day, if he had to. Um, but only one was required, and then he took his head. So, yeah, I think Goliath and the Philistines 
knew all along that the monarchy was going to present the Messiah from the bloodlines of the monarchy and that David was going to be the one who was going to replace Saul because Saul had not followed all of the orders in terms of the destruction, the complete destruction of the Amalekites for their sins against Israel that dates back to that war or fitum that we talked about in the time of the Exodus. So I think that's a, that's a very plausible understanding that the uh, that Goliath would have had at that time that this is a this is a TSN turning point, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> that if if I kill David, I mean, it really ups, upends everything for for what has uh, been planned. Uh, is it true that when an, um, a giant was killed or a Nephilim was killed, that it created a demon? Yes. So when we look at that word Rapha, uh, which is the root word for Raphaim. Uh, and Rapha is singular. There are three words that are connected together, and they root back to uh, 7495, which is Rapha, which can mean a doctor and a healer. Uh, and then the offshoot of that is the root word is giant, which is 7497. And then 7496 is a demon spirit and a uh, shade or a shea, as it's also understood, and, and a spirit. And so the understanding is, is this in terms of the connection of the words is that the Raphaim and the Nephilim were thought to have some sort of special healing capabilities, and the only way to kill them was to take the head. Uh, so a blow that would just instantly make it irreparable. And whether or not that was through something in the body or through the sarcophagus um, that they could regenerate in, it's hard to know. But both were important to them in terms of, of uh, in terms of the sarcophagus. That's part of the giant legacy and part of the king's history. And also this legendary ability to heal themselves. Uh, from their wound somehow, some way, and of course the root word for for uh, the demon spirit and and for the giant. And what happens in terms of the creation of the giants is that they are receiving the immortal spirit of the fallen angel of the god, and that this spirit cannot die, but it's a counterfeit spirit, and the body is going to die. It's part of the physical world, and in Genesis six three. In the creation story of the giants, that's where God steps in and says physical life is not going to extend past 120 years after the descendants uh, die out after the flood. Because you've got Noah, who is obviously born before the flood, and all of his sons and the wives, and they're still going to live the longer lives. But the time of Moses, who actually dies at 120 years, you actually have that sort of established as that's the length of period. But the immortal spirit doesn't go to sleep like humans do, as recorded biblically over and over and over, that we go to sleep, and that's why we have a resurrection when, when uh, we're, we will be awakened. But the, the, the immortal spirit of the Raphaim doesn't go to sleep, and the Nephilim doesn't go to sleep, and it's not allowed into heaven. So it's either going to go to, to a couple of places. It's either going to roam the earth, or it's going to find its way into the underworld, or it's going to be sent to the abyss where the fallen angels were uh, sentenced to. 
And we understand biblically that you've got Rephaim and Nephilim spirits along the sides of the abyss in the cells from Ezekiel 32, where they're speaking to in Ezekiel 32 to the Pharaoh, who's a Rephaim, and are encouraging them and, and carrying on this prophetic conversation that's, that's going on in, in that chapter. And so those are the terrible ones, the ones who did terrible things to humans while they were on earth at, and, and were slain. So we understand that's the spirit that went in there. So there's a direct connection to the word uh, demon, to, to the giants, through Rapha and Raphaim, and to what we see in the world today as the ro roaming spirits. And why in the secret societies and in the royal Masonic societies of the bloodlines is that they were taught the rituals and the knowledge to find their way after death so that they wouldn't end up in the cell uh, along the abyss and not roaming uh, the earth, but into the underworld where at least they are not thirsting for a body and trying to interact uh, with the world. And these are the same demon spirits that Jesus ran across that were possessing people. One, the most famous one is Legion. And they need, they thirst and need a place for rest because just roaming the earth is, I guess, is very tiresome and, and lonesome. And so the only way they can do that is through possession. The word devil in the New Testament, when it's talking about these accounts, goes back to the Greek word daemon for demon. Not to be confused with the devil that's written and translated in the English language that comes from Diablos, which is specifically used for references to Satan. And it's unfortunate that the translators, particularly in the King James Version Bible, uses devil for both there, because they should have been more specific with demon. All right, so, um, secret societies and uh, giants. You sort of alluded to, uh, to it there, but... Um, so are the secret societies made up, I mean, inclusion in the secret society, uh, do you have to have, you know, that gene, that Nephilim gene to, to, to be uh, included? I think so. I think so. And here's how I get there, is that even with the lowest level secret society of any consequence is Freemasonry. And it's that sort of the bottom level level of the tree trunk where the adept level uh, is third degree on the York right or 33rd degree on the, on, the, on the Scottish right. But there are many, many degrees above that. You have to be invited to join Freemasonry. And at the lower levels where you're not an adept and you're not an adept until you're full third degree York or full 33rd degree Scottish right, they are told misinformation and only parts of the information and that the only qualification is you need to be invited and you have to believe in a God of some sort, right? And they're going to get all their answers, at least uh, from a lower societal level of adepts at the 33rd degree and the third degree, uh, you're going to get start getting the truer answers, but not all of them because there's obviously a lot more degrees. So with that thought in mind, if we look at how secret societies begin, it begins before the flood, and it reconstitutes itself again after the flood. And the secret societies are formed from the formation of the seven sciences that uh, were taught 
uh, as, as a sort of bulk knowledge to Adam, passed on to Cain, passed on to his first son Enoch, not to be confused with Enoch, son of Jared. There's two Enochs in the two separate genealogies. This is Enoch, son of Cain, and he develops the, this knowledge into seven separate sciences that are understood as the seven liberal arts today, and that's the knowledge that merges with uh, the knowledge of the gods that created civilization and writing and everything else. So you also have with that development of that, the offspring of mysticism and Enochian mysticism, which is the sun bull cult of the antediluvian epoch, and the mystery schools to develop those sciences, which is the offshoot and start of the secret societies. So this is all at the nobility, the elite class, the larger family of the Nephilim kings and warriors, and the priests that are also of those same bloodlines. And so this knowledge then crosses the flood. And according to Freemasonry and the history of Freemasonry, as it's recorded, it's either the location to the bank of knowledge that they store in 36,525 books under the pyramids that they take credit for building with the knowledge developed by Enoch, son of Cain, are put on two pillars, one that is able to survive an apocalypse by water, so it floats, and one that could uh, survive an apocalypse of fire. And they put that information on about the, the religion, about the sciences and the location that it's located under the Great Pyramid in Egypt. And a fellow named Hermes collects that information because he finds the pillar that survived, the one that floated, and brings that information back to Nimrod, and they start applying that knowledge to build Babel City, Babel Tower, and that we're told biblically that acting as one people um, with one language, nothing they attempt to do will be prevented from them doing, and then you get the dispersion. But what's important is, is that this knowledge is shared with Nimrod, who then initiates over a thousand masons to start doing this building, and he writes the first constitution for uh, the masons after the flood. So he is the first grand master after the flood. He is starting a royal dynasty as the king of Babel, and thereafter when he stays in Shinar, which is Sumer. And you also have the royal uh, patriarchs of Tubal Cain, part of Freemasonry, and Rosicrucians and Secret Societies, Jubal, Jubal, and Lamech, which are all of the uh, lineage of Cain. Of course, Enoch is sort of the superstar patriarch to the Secret Societies. And so, if you understand that Secret Societies at the upper level of this tree that I've used for an allegory to describe their hierarchy, that's the Royal Masons. That's the ancient Masons. And so they operate at the top level of these secret organizations and the lower level of the bloodlines are at the bottom. So again, I use that as sort of a how I get there that they have to be invited into Freemasonry and therefore they're typically from people who have been Freemasons and part of secret societies and part of the elite previously and that they would at least have some sort of genealogy and or bloodline and or gene to be invited. But the higher you go up and the major intersection along the tree trunk is the Rosicrucians, which is 50% pure blood at the top and then 50% of rising lower level stock of the other secret societies through the Freemasons, through the Illuminati, 
And then above the uh, above the Rosicrucians are the Royal Masonic uh, organizations. Uh, Nimrod, uh, we're just about he- heading into a break here, so I'll ask this question and then we can pick it up on the other side. But uh, Nimrod, who you just mentioned, um, he, if he's involved in the secret societies, then it would follow that he is a descendant of the Nephilim. But Nimrod is also, I believe, the great-grandson of Noah. Now, Noah's family were supposed to be purebloods. Um, so is it possible that that's not the case, that that someone on the Ark, in fact, was descendant of or had Nephilim blood? Uh, we'll, um, we'll get to that answer on the other side. Gary Wayne stays with us. The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Genesis6conspiracy.com. That's the website. Use the numeral six. Genesis6conspiracy.com. Gary Wayne is with us. So Nimrod, was he a, was he a giant or a descendant of giants? Yeah, you posed a couple of good scenarios there just before the break. And uh, let's start with uh, Nimrod and work our way back. So we do know he's the son of Cush. And uh, he is uh, obviously does not have a male of, uh, fallen angel for a father, because we know Cush is, uh, um, you know, a direct descendant of Noah, as, as you mentioned. But what he, what we are told is, is he became a mighty one, which is the Hebrew word gibor and giborim in, in plural. And giborim can be used to describe a giant, or it can be used to describe uh, strength or being strong, and it's used to describe angels, it's used to describe the power of God, used to s- describe men. It's not always used for um, Rephaim or Nephilim. So you have to be careful in terms of when it says mighty one and when that word is used, and how does that fit the narrative that it, that it is in. But it's that word became that's really interesting. As in, and as you take that back, you learn that it, he broke an oath, he violated something. So I think he was probably somehow changed or transformed somehow uh, with some of the knowledge that he was uh, learned. And he certainly had a strut like a giant. The, the Freemasons don't really look at him as a giant, though, uh, in, their, in their history. He was large. He was strong. He gained his reputation on the giants. Yes, but they look at him more as somebody who improved himself, let's say, with, with the knowledge that, that he had inherited from Hermes from before the flood. You were mentioning, did somebody, did a giant, um, was he included on the ark? From a biblical perspective, we're not told that. All we're told is the eight. But the Gnostics also believe, and there's many versions in the Gnostic versions of the flood, that Noah was a giant or uh, some of the uh, sons were giant, like Ham, or all three were giants, or all the people on the ark were giants. And then there's other versions, particularly coming out of Jewish legend and mysticism, where you have either Tubal Cain or Og who are hanging on to the ark uh, 
during the flood and Noah feeds them out of uh, empathy and lets them survive into the the new world and that's why he's called the last of the Raphaim although um, we don't get that as being biblically and Raphaim as I said is there's a distinction between that and the Nephilim so I, I think Og is the last of the creation of the giants after the flood as opposed to a survivor but we have to be open to the fact that giants could survive the flood because we're not exactly told how they survived the flood in the Bible now what's interesting is which a lot of people will use as a comparative for the Genesis flood story is the epic of Gilgamesh and in the epic of Gilgamesh you have Gilgamesh who is a giant that seems to be uh, six generations, so three generations after Nimrod, but he's like 19 feet tall. He's 11 cubits tall, and he's the king of Uruk. And he is as wide as Og's bed, so he's six to seven feet wide. I mean, just an absolute monster. But there's also a Gilgamesh that's talked about before the flood in, in the Book of Giants. And I think Gilgamesh is named after that giant, which is common and a sort of patronymic, and you see that all throughout those kinds of names after the flood, uh, patronymic names coming from giants like Magog uh, as a descendant of Japheth. Magog was an offspring of Iapetus, uh, who also produced Gog uh, and Albion as giants before the flood. So that's a common common thing that happens is, is, my, is my point. But you have um, with the, uh, the idea that Gilgamesh is writing this, uh, is, is the main character in it, but he is two-thirds God and one-third human, and he's created after the flood, as Enkidu is, and he's two-thirds God and one-third human. And he tells the flood story in about Tablet 10, beginning in Tablet 10, uh, that includes an individual called Upmatishtin, who is also one-third human and two-thirds God, and he's the archetypical Nephilim, and his whole family is Nephilim. So you get in the epic of the Gilgamesh a second incursion and a giant survival story. And so you have to be sort of open to that possibility that somehow, somehow giants survived the flood, not necessarily on the ark that Noah is on, because that's clearly biblically a human survival st a story. Um, but certainly you have many accounts of giants surviving the flood on the ark as in Deucalion and Pyrrha in the Greek mythology because Deucalion is the son of Prometheus so he's Nephilim as well and they become like the Greek Noah but again it's a giant survival story so when you look at the flood stories and the survival stories of the flood you get two accounts all around the world you get a human survival and you also get a giant survival so because we're not told explicitly in the Bible how they show up after the flood. We have to be open to the idea that somehow they survived the flood, but typically I fall on a second incursion because it just seems to fit better with the details. All right, let's go to the uh, YouTube live chat, and uh, here are some questions for you, Gary. Mirai's P, or Mirai's P asks, are Nephilim descendants alive today, and who are they? Are there 14 bloodlines? And did these fallen angels create mermaids, unicorns, centaurs, griffins, even possibly dinosaurs as they tried to play God by mixing DNA? All right, so three questions there. Uh, Nephilim descendants alive today, and who are they? 
Yeah, I think they are. I think we have the descendants in the royal families, and they've continued all down through the generations uh, from after the flood of intermarriage as much as they could. And, you know, First World War, you had basically had uh, a family civil war because they were all cousins, and they continued to intermarriage as much as they could, they can. And they, where you fit in the royal Masonic uh, secret societies and the royal families is in terms of your hierarchy is the purity of that bloodline that's kept in genealogies that go back into the mists of time and how you've scioned or grafted in other ennobled bloodlines so like the merovingians for example were the most ennobled bloodline to that time with all of the scioning of other pure bloodlines into their royal bloodlines complete with the genealogies that they said they had and the Stuart dynasty, or yes, the Stuart dynasty, the uh, unicorn dynasty, was the most noble dynasty to that point. So these are the descendants of the giants. And when you hear particularly the Stuart dynasty, the unicorn dynasty, that they have a divine right to rule, that divine right comes from after the flood from the Balim of Mount Hermon, uh, the council of the gods that's recorded in Psalm 82 that rule over the 70 nations that's talked about in Deuteronomy 32 that are ruling as what they would believe superior beings. So when you look at the word royale, and you look at the, the, the end suffix on it, al, that's actually from a, a, a legitimate original word, which is el in Hebrew for an angel or a god. And Roy is a king. They call themselves the kings of God or Rex Deus or the black nobility. They have a lot of different sort of allegories for their name. But that uh, understanding that they believe that they descend from the gods and which gives them the right to rule is something we need to all keep in mind because they control everything from the the secret society level through the royal masonic orders and so typically the 13 families that people talk about aren't the 13 families of the world there could be 13 families of the world um Hard to get information on that, but the 13 families that most people look at are the 13 European families. And the American bloodlines that are intermarrying with those bloodlines would be called the pseudo-blue bloods. That they're trying to ennoble through generations to, to position themselves higher up in the hierarchy of who runs the world uh, through their children intermarrying and continuing to intermarry and scioning in. So the 13 families would be at the top of the Western secret societies, but I understand there's bloodlines and secret societies all over the world. Some say there's 13 families that run the whole world that some are, are sort of extend out of the 13 families of Europe. Got it. Okay. And did these fallen angels create mermaids, unicorns, centaurs, griffins, even possibly dinosaurs, as they tried to play God by mixing DNA? Yes, they did. Again, whether or not it was through copulation or scientific knowledge or a combination of both, the centaurs are actually created in a cloud, as is Amaka Seth in the Gnostic uh, religion, which is a precursor race of giants to the giants uh, created in Genesis 6, according to the Gnostics, also created in a cloud. So that sort of implies, you know, above the earth in some sort of laboratory and some sort of DNA manipulation. And when we look at the technology that we're just catching up to now, and we're not there yet, 
with what they did in had in the antediluvian times because the end time is going to be like the days of Noah. We're just starting to get into DNA manipulation now and to the level of technology that I think they had before the flood. And with all of those different types of creations that you're talking about that are talked about through poly, polytheism, those would be examples. And the best example of DNA manipulation would be the chimera, which is used today for the same type of technology that's being applied. And King Habada out of the Epic of Gilgamesh would be your perfect example as a Nephilim chimera with all the different parts of animals that he would have had that likely had to be done through DNA manipulation. All right. Another uh, timeout awaits back on the other side with more questions from the uh, YouTube live chat. Gary Wayne stays with us. The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Back with more in a moment. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. All right, we're back with Gary Wayne. The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Genesis6Conspiracy.com. Genesis6Conspiracy.com. Gary, any plans for um, uh, a revised edition? uh, and, And what else are you working on these days? Yeah, I have two books on the go. Um, the first one that's going to come out, I've set the the other book aside. It's an end time prophecy book on the second Exodus. Uh, I said I would never write a sequel to the Genesis Six conspiracy because I didn't want to be redundant. But hearing from so many people over the last number of years, I've decided to do the sequel. It should be out uh, by the midpoint of next year, hopefully the end of the first quarter. But that's might be a little bit tight on the guideline and. It's going to go in such uh, detail of additional information that people have been sort of asking for as to how much is said about giants and angiology in the Bible and how does prehistory connect to the end time. So it's going to be called Prehistory and Prophecy, the Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2, and I'm hoping to have it out before the midpoint of next year. Fantastic. All right. Highly anticipated for sure. Um Let's see. Uh, Thinker asks, how does the evolution of Lilith and the bloodline of Satan unfold in today's society? Yeah, that's another good question, because Lilith is uh, kind of part of the key allegory of the matriarchal bloodlines of, uh, of the giants. And so you have patriarchal, which is usually utilized in an allegory of the dragon. Um, and so when you have like Pendragon, um, as an Uther Pendragon, um, that's a common sort of understanding. The, the, the matriarchal bloodline is the fairy or the owl, and the patriarchal is the dragon or the raven. And Lilith is sort of typically understood as an owl type of, of imagery, and she is the offspring of uh, Tiamat which is a serpentine god, a female goddess and creator of all sorts of these creatures that the last uh, person was asking about from the Sumerian pantheon. Bast would be a similar one, but that was a lion god out of the uh, Egyptian god. And, of course, the god that shows up in the Black Panther because it's a lion god. So uh, makes kind of sense when you look at it. But when you look at um, what's... What, what's uh, 
what is going on with uh, Lilith is is that she has at a Sumerian mythology she has uh, a daughter named Lula Lilith that is going to marry in the in the mystical Jewish uh, rendition as it mixes in with uh, Sumerian traditions is going to marry uh, or Cain and Lilith is also a consort of Adam in that Gnostic and mystical Jewish sort of uh, understanding of, 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 of the time of Adam and Eve. So you have Lilith that is obviously at least a demigod and maybe an offspring god and is also producing offspring and is used as a significant part of the allegory of, of the fairy uh, matriarchal and owl matriarchal bloodline and what's interesting about how they started new dynasties is they had to have a pure a super pure blood uh, female queen to start a new dynasty with a with a, 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 a you know a prince of the of the dragon bloodline so understanding Lilith's connection and allegory as well as Tiamat in the allegories of the bloodlines is very, very important if you're going to get to be able to understand the writings of the elites in terms of how they embed things. So it comes together for as a quick example, because I know I'm going on for a long time on the answer here. But if you go to Uther Pendragon, whose son was King Arthur, they were Tuatha Dodanan. They were, again, those giants that we're talking about. And he's representing the dragon bloodline. And the fairy queen of the Tuatha Dé Danann, and the Tuatha Dé Danann are the fairy people, uh, is Guinevere. So you get that coming together as that allegory of the bloodlines and that Camelot uh, marriage that is so famous in the Arthur tales and the Grail tales. All right. Uh, we just got about three minutes here before the next break. Um, Andrew Boyle asking asking Gary if you know of the giant killed in Iraq during the American occupation around 2003. Um, I'm not sure if that's – there's also – there's a story of a giant uh, that was, I believe, killed in Kandahar in Afghanistan. I don't know that's, if we're talking about the same. Yeah, that's the same um, accounting as, as my recollection is, and it was on um, Coast to Coast with Steve Quayle. And I actually listened to that. Uh, at one point in time, and I was absolutely fascinated by the accuracy to the detail that was being delivered uh, on on the interview in terms of what the giants looked like and how hard they were to kill and how fleet of foot and how fast, how they smelled, the size, everything was so very, very similar to the details that I had assembled as to what they would have looked like and how they would have acted that if it was a hoax, then it was information supplied by people who understood Nephilim inside and out. Fascinating. Where would, how would these giants just suddenly, you know, pop up uh, without, you know, significant breeding pairs and, and so forth? You know, why aren't there more giants seen running around? If, if there were two... There must be more. That gets to be the obstacle to the story. So the question then is, is is that sort of a recent rendition or something that is, is released? I mean, there is so much of the mythos that's out there that 
Giants are going to show up in the end time because they've been held in stasis and underground chambers all over the world in Antarctica and everywhere else. We have so much of that information, but or there's been some angels that aren't in the abyss because only the worst of the angels that fell and the impassioned ones went into the abyss. And we talked about the numbers that would be part of the rebellion. Not all are in there. So as we get closer to the end time, they may start recreating these giants and maybe they already have um, but somehow some way we're going to see these giants again in the end time either through the bloodlines or a recreation or through dna manipulation just as the nazis were trying to do with the new man technology but somehow some way or both we're going to have a resurgence of the power of either the descendants and or both with the giants. And I look at Daniel 2's prophecy in, in verse 43 in the metallic dynasties. Gary, let me and, just uh, jump in here. Pardon the interruption. We'll we'll pick up on that point. Daniel 2, you said. We'll uh, continue this with Gary Wayne on the other side as we discuss giants right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. So, Gary, you were talking about uh, Daniel 2, and we were discussing, I guess, the role of giants in the end times and how they will, I guess, have to be, they'll have to reemerge in some manner. Yeah, and Daniel 2.43 is kind of a frightening um, passage to read, and you need to read it out of the King James Version Bible as opposed to the other translations to get, um, I guess, the more startling sort of version of it, probably more accurate as you take it back to, to, to Hebrew. And so it says that the ten kings of the end time, which is the end time empire that rises out of the Roman Empire, uh, it says that these ten kings will commingle and mix their seed with men, which is suggesting some sort of different race of some sort. So either it's the descendants that of the giants that consider themselves still a different race and superior to humans, or it's new giants and Raphaim that are going to be there, or there's going to be um, something else that's going on, because you could also interpret that as you take the meanings of the commingling um, back Hebrew, it could mean possession. So it could be that the technology that we're creating, and I'm speculating on this based on that possession and, and, and the and spirit commingling as in a possession or a avatar avatar effect that angels would use. Um, you would that the technology that we're creating it could be the bodies that are going to be recreated through clone bodies or transhumanism or whatever that will create this oikotarian which is the habitation the dwelling place that a spirit requires in the physical world to interact in the physical world so there could be those oikotarian bodies being developed with the technology and dna manipulation and everything that's going on today so I think that's something when you look at that, you say, wait a minute, what's going on? Who are these people? And I need to learn maybe a little bit more about them. And when you understand that the beast empires of uh, Babylon, Greece, Persia, and Rome, and the two before, Assyria and Egypt, all are outreaches of the descendants of the Rephaim after the flood. So... These beast kingdoms have either the bloodlines and or giants coming back to rule in the last seven years. Uh, Mike Logue asks, were there any females born among the daughters of men and the giants? 
Yes, as in in, in giant um, females. Yes, there were. And in Greek mythology, they're known as the Titanides. And so when you have King Oberon, who's uh, in Shakespeare, and Shakespeare's writing that polytheist history and encoding those characters, and Oberon goes back to Scythians as an overlord, and Uberon, and Overain, and all of those sort of words through the etymology. He's the king of the fairies, and his wife's name is Titania, which is, you know, a female derivative off of Titan. In After the Flood, we actually get one account biblically, as I talked about earlier, was the offspring Amalek, who creates the hybrid race, uh, is the mother there is Timna, who is descended from Seir, which is basically in Hebrew the same word as Satir, a degraded seraphim angel, uh, degraded watcher. She is a female giant after the flood that marries Eliphaz to produce Amalek and the elven bloodline or the fairy bloodline uh, as you take duke as they're called uh, the dukes of edom back to the hebrew word which is aleph and that's the allegory of the polytheist used for the elven fairy bloodline uh the the uh, alien abduction phenomenon is that somehow uh, i've done many shows on this but i'd be interested in your take connected to uh you know as in the days of noah so we, you know, in in the days of Noah and before, there was this human fallen angel hybrid program going on. Some accounts of the alien abduction phenomena seem to point to some sort of alien human hybrid program going on. Are they connected? Are they related? Oh yeah, I think they're related, and uh, you know, it's also connected to fairies, and then there's different classification of fairies, and that includes the elementals, which are the little people, although the salamanders are the fourth classification and part of, of the reptilians of that alien mythos. Where I'm going quickly on this is that fairies have been with us all through our history as legend, but they have a legend of coming through fairy mounds with flying machines and kidnapping people and doing um, sexual experimentations on them to try and help regenerate their bloodline because they too have an, a, a difficulty in reproducing and keeping their genes pure from disease. And these people are called the gray neighbors and they're part of the gnome classification in the little people of the ugly ones. And they looked after the technology and the genealogies and the knowledge of the demigods and the fallen angels in, in, the, in the physical world. And I put a couple of examples of a fairy abduction in the Genesis 6 conspiracy book that if you didn't know it was a fairy doing the abduction, you would swear it was a gray alien because they look identical. And so the alien mythos, I think, is all interconnected with the types of beings that the angels created uh, as being created, recreated after the flood again and working through portals and into different dimensions because most of the aliens sort of come through portals and things, right? Just as the fairies do, just as the, the Raphaim did and just as the, as the gods did and do. And I think all of the different creatures that we're going to see in the alien mythos are going to be used as sort of the, the story, the cover story for all of these beings that were created by the, the fallen angels after the flood, just as they created them before the flood, as violations against the laws of creation. So if there is some sort of a hybrid program going on now, uh, is, are, is this about raising an army for 
Satan or the Antichrist? It's about, yeah, it's partially about that. It's partially about to raise that army, you have to raise the level of technology. I mean, our level of technology is increasing exponentially at an unexplainable pace. And it almost seems like we're being fed this knowledge to have us caught up. So we're all forward to an army that you're talking about. After the abyss is opened in Revelation 9, and Azazel, Abaddon, Napoleon comes out with the scorpion beings, that's another rabbit hole we won't go down now, you have similar types of beings that, but are a little bit different that are in the 200 million man war. And these are the same type of creatures that are just depicted in Joel 1 and 2, and this is the same war as Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Gog and Magog war of the end time that happens just before the midpoint of the last seven years. And these creatures that are described in Revelation 9 and Joel 1 and 2 seem to be highly advanced technical combination of AI, transhumanism, uh, some sort of cloning, but they are creatures that are designed and created for battle, which is why they seem so unrecognizable. Wow. I uh, just have a couple minutes here. I had uh, I was on Coast to Coast last night with Derek Gilbert talking about the second coming of Saturn. And we talked about about a year ago now, the uh, the great conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, the reemergence uh, of Saturn as, you know, a reigning supreme in the sky, his contention that Saturn is Satan. What do you think of that? Um, Saturn is typically used as, as an allegory for, for uh, Satan um, or as Azel. It's actually used for both. So um, I think when we look at the wandering stars and that those, those seven planets and stars in the in, in, in the planets. So as we talk about, is that seven um, Satan's of, of of Satan? Is Satan is still above that? And so I would look at the coming of the Babylon religion as the pantheon, and then Satan is above that, and Satan rules with Antichrist in the last three and a half years. So Babylon will show up before the start of the last seven years, but will be destroyed by Antichrist in the midpoint. So when we look at what is being presented as signs through astrology, we should expect to see more of that because they're trying to bring this about. They want this rendezvous with destiny. So if you're uh, following that, just Take it for note, but also note that there's another side of signs that are going to be coming that aren't astrological. And I wouldn't advise people to follow astrology and astrological signs, but we need to understand that the people who are trying to bring about world government and the, and, and the Ten King Empire, they believe it. And what they're doing with that belief which is what we need to be focused on. Fantastic. Great job, Gary. I learned so much when you come on. And we look forward with uh, great anticipation to the uh, sequel to the Genesis 6 conspiracy happening uh, or arriving sometime mid-year next year. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been, it's been terrific. Conspiracy, uh, sorry, Genesis6conspiracy.com. Genesis6conspiracy.com. All right, my thanks to Carlos and to Ryan. Uh, don't forget, next week, Boxing Day, there will be a uh, 
a previously enjoyed program from December 26, 2012. Merry Christmas. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.